Round of applause for David. He wasn't so awkward. It's mildly awkward. Oh, it's good to be together. I love the summertime. I was thankful I got to take a vacation uh, back to my home state, North Carolina, and sit on the beach. I count it quite a privilege. We are very landlocked people here in Kansas City. A long way to the ocean. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. Um, so it was nice. Um, I'm just enjoying the time of summer and being out and about and what the Lord's doing. And I'm really thankful to be back inside with this family. Um, Julie right now is in Beirut, as David said, my wife. And so I am single dadding it this week and surviving. Uh, my girls are fantastic. The house has not burnt down yet. And I think everyone's eaten most of the meals uh, mostly because they've cooked a lot of them. And so we're making it. Thank you, girls, an ode to you. Um, Lord, we welcome you into this space. We know you're here, but we're just so thankful to be here. You treasure every single one of your sons and daughters. Every one of your sheep, beyond anything we can possibly imagine, you pay attention to every detail in our heart and in our life. You do not miss a moment. You do not miss a beat. You carry the lambs in your arms close to your heart. And so we welcome you, shepherd of the sheep today. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Would you speak into our lives? Amen. Well, I've dove deep as usual into something. I'm so deep down into it. I'm hoping I can come up to the surface with some treasure for you. If I don't make it up, just bear with me. Um, and God, I think even more, has dove deep into my heart around this and formation. And so I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will have something for every one of us and bless us. But by his grace, would he meet you? You have permission to listen to his voice uh, irrespective of what I'm saying or not saying, I pray that he would make it personal to you, his word. I'm so honored to be a part of this Nava family and the way that we have followed Jesus together. I want to thank you for your commitment to seriously following after him, to seeking Jesus with all your heart when it is not easy. I honor you, my church family, in that. It is beautiful to watch your lives. Through all that we've walked through, you are following him. And I love it. Uh, recently, a spiritual father in my life went to be with Jesus. Some of you might have read uh, the post that I did about him. His name was Floyd McClung and... Uh, he was a gentle giant, as they would say, a, a behemoth of a man, six foot six or six foot seven. When I would hug him, my head would just come over his uh, stomach. It was an awkward hug, and, um, but it was an all-encompassing one. He was, he was kind, and uh, he was also courageous and fierce. He taught me so many things. He marked me with so many things, including his imperfections. And uh, he never shied away from his imperfections. And that's one of the most beautiful things about a leader. I got to see the good and the bad and the ugly. And he uh, didn't keep those things away. And I got marked with a love for the church. 
In fact, what I would call as a young man, my conversion to the church. I wanted Jesus and I wanted revival and I thought the church was the problem. Sometimes I still wonder if the church is the problem, but I now love the church and realize I'm part of that problem. And he imparted that to me. So many things uh, that he gave to me in those five years that he walked with David and I and some of our friends, and quite honestly, this church wouldn't be here without the uh, entrustment that he gave to young leaders. He banked so much trust on people like us who did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And um, there were so many beautiful things that got imparted to my heart, but Above all, as I've reflected on Floyd's life and on my own life, I would say it was his radical commitment to follow Jesus. And specifically these words, a life lived for the glory of God. A life lived for the glory of God. I remember him so many times praying that prayer, Whatever glorifies you most, God, that's what I want. Floyd did all kinds of incredible exploits around the world. He went to over 190 nations. He wrote a book on the Father Heart of God that literally changed millions of people's lives. And he raised his family in the red light district of Amsterdam. And his children grew up around those who were shamed and used and abused and rejected. And he taught them how to love the unlovely and give his life for the neglected. But all of that, and he, he finished his life off moving in his 60s to give himself in a township where there was utter poverty. <laughs> he felt so out of place. And yet he wanted to live a life for the glory of God. I can't think of anything that I would like to mark my life more than that phrase. Anything that I would like to mark this church more than living lives for the glory of God. We're all going to stand before those beautiful eyes, that man Jesus. And when I stand before him, I want to know that I lived a life before him for the glory of God. There's so many other things to live for, so many other things to desire. But I pray through this message that something awakens in your heart and beats with fresh life. And you say, that man, Jesus, is worthy of all that I am. And I want to live a life for the glory of God. A life for the glory of God. Is that what I'm living for? I've asked myself. Am I living for the glory of God? If not, what am I living for? A story that's been in my meditation for over a year. That's why I say I've dove a bit deep on this. It might, I may not get out with all the nuance. So help me out if I'm just lost somewhere. What I do know is that this message, whether it's relevant to you or not, is changing my life. And that is most important. Um, but I pray again that it serves you. But I've wondered, like, what am I living for? And the passage that I've come to is John chapter 21. It's about Peter, and we'll spend most of our time on this story of Peter, this transition moment in Peter's life. It's a story about the glory of God, a story about love, and full surrender. 
If I was to say, what is a life lived for the glory of God? I would say it is becoming a man or woman of love. I can't think of a more watered down word other than maybe God. And that makes sense because God is love. To become a person of love is a life lived for the glory of God. And to totally and utterly surrender to that God of love every step of the way, doing whatever he asks, is how we become people of love. A life lived for the glory of God. That's what I want. It's what I want for this church. It's what I want for this nation. It's what I want for the bride across the nations of the earth. That's what I saw in Floyd, and it's what I see in the journey of Peter. It seems right and obvious, right? Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man, all those who have been catechized? Thank you, a good Presbyterian. To enjoy God. No, I said it wrong. Say it. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, seems quite obvious until you start to press into what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? What would it look like for your life to be filled with the glory of God? What would it look like for my life to be lived for the glory of God? I believe it will always look like Jesus. I know it's a Sunday school answer. Let's take it a little deeper. It will always look like Jesus, a life consumed with love and surrendered to obedience to the Father. It will always look like Jesus, a Jesus-shaped life. I am believing for a Jesus movement out of our utter weakness, but I do not believe a Jesus-shaped movement can be shaped like anything except Jesus. A crucified life. So the context of John 21 is, of course, the whole entire gospel of John. John 21 is at the very end. So if you're going to understand the story of Peter, you have to begin to understand the whole context of this beloved disciple and what he saw about a man that changed everything in his being. And his thesis, his goal is that you would trust this man and surrender everything. That's why he wrote it. But his thesis is that you would see the glory of God in Jesus so profoundly, so beautifully, that only and all of you would respond with, I am yours completely. All I want is your glory. He wanted you to see the glory of God. He starts his beautiful gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel of John is glory redefined completely. I was meditating on John, and I just, I wrote a, a poem of sorts, thinking about glory redefined, and I want to share it with you, and I want to share it into your heart. If you could hear with your heart for a moment, Holy Spirit, would you take us on a tour of the redefining of glory through Jesus? Because everything we thought glory was, everything we thought greatness was, everything we thought success is, is being redefined in this man, Jesus. 
Glory redefined in a face, in flesh, dwelling amongst us, in a place, Nazareth, nowhere, the everyday of earth, glory mundane, misunderstood, mistreated, rejected, grace-filled and a table found making wine at a wedding at a well with the shamed at a pool with the beggars at a feast with the forgotten at a funeral weeping glory that is ultimately beaten beaten and marred beyond recognition crowned with thorns suffering and crucified feeling God forsaken until the final breath and then death And now we know what love is, pierced and crushed. This is redefined glory of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Glory laid in a tomb to rest. And just when we thought all was lost, he is risen. And there is glory hidden, hidden in a garden where she's heartbroken and on a road with two hopeless travelers and in a room with the terrified, and at a sea with one broken man who's denied. Glory. Glory redefined in Jesus. And this is where we pick up on the story in John 21. What does it look like for the glory of God to be redefined? A life lived for the glory of God. You can open to John 21 if you want. I'm going to be in the whole chapter. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he, re- and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. What loaded words. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got in the boat. The story with Peter always gets me. I'm going fishing. That's where he started. We can only imagine what Peter's going through here, right? how painful and disappointed and defeated this guy is. Everything he's lived for is a failure. And not only what he's lived for, but he himself has a thousand pounds of weight over his own failure. He said he'd die, but instead he just denied. He completely, in front of his best friend, lost his courage and denied his king. Given up, gone back to what he knew. You wonder what's going through Peter's mind. The good old times, at best, it's nostalgia of when his life meant something. And at the worst, it's just this gaping, irreconcilable hole. 
And he's just back on a fishing boat. And I don't know if his friends went with him because they felt sorry for him or if because they had nowhere to turn, but man, I resonate with this place of, I have no idea where to go or what's next. I'm not sure how to hold myself in the middle of this liminal space. It's not going how I thought it would go. Did you ever get to a point in your life and you're like, this is my story and I'm not sure I like it. Sorry, am I speaking to anyone else in a midlife crisis? I know I'm speaking out of kind of the middle zone, but there's people before this that are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. There's people way after me in the stage of life are going, I've been there four times, it's gonna be all right. But you get to a point and you're like, this is my story? I don't want this to be my story. And to make things worse, they go out all night in their grand adventure back into mundane nothingness, and that's exactly what they catch, nothing. Not one fish, not a few fish, nothing. When you're defeated and then you just get slapped in the face with depression on top of it, nothing, not a fish. Freaking throw me a bone, God, I'm a fisherman. You think you wanna be here on this boat all night doing this? You can feel the emotions rising up and I'm like, nothing? I mean, this is the phrase that sums up Peter's entire three-year journey. Nothing. That's the metaphor for Peter. All your best effort led to nothing. All your strength and everything you thought would happen led to nothing. So encouraging, right? I'm so glad this stuff is in the Bible. I'm like, I'm on the nothing boat, God. Anybody else on the nothing boat? I want to get off the flipping nothing boat. Okay, you might have to throw yourself in the water. I resonate with the nothing boat so much. This is not where he wanted to be. Like all of us, I'm sure if he knew what he was getting himself into, he would have never said yes in the first place. And Peter had a clear vision of glory. It was going to be great. It was going to be the most popular religion in the world. Successful. Bigger to better. That is the road to success. Everything else feels like nothing. And he is absolutely at the wrong place in his life. Dr. Henry Cloud, uh, who's a something important, I'm not sure what his title is. He talks about the subjectivity of the brain when all goes to hell in a handbasket and you're living in the nothing boat. When pressure hits you. He calls it the three Ps when you're under pressure. Helpful for a pastor. 
I resonate with these three Ps there. Here's what happens in your brain as a default reaction when you're under pressure. First, you make it really personal. Second, it becomes pervasive. And thirdly, it feels permanent. Personal, pervasive, and permanent. Here's what that sounds like potentially for Peter. I failed. It's all become nothing. Not a little, nothing. And it's never going to change. It's all my fault. It all went wrong. And it's always going to be this way. I've caught myself a lot of times on the subjective brain downward spiral of those three Ps. Like, gosh, this is really personal. Feels like I failed. And then you can feel this thing of like, yeah, and it's, it's everything. Like, you've totally left me. It's nothing. And it's, I see no way out of this. It's hopeless. Here's the good news. When you realize that, you can catch yourself and go, oh, that's what brains do. That's comforting. Does anyone else feel comforted by that? My life's a total failure. It's my fault. It's never going to change. Brains do that. So you can catch yourself and welcome in the presence of God into the 3P meltdown. I'm in the nothing boat. There's this uh, story that found me over the last, uh, yesterday, from three places. Some of you might have heard this lady sing. Her name's Nightbird. Raise your hand if you heard Nightbird. See, it's crazy. 16 million people in three days on YouTube are, wa- are listening to Nightbird. She found me from three areas. I walk over to Dave's. Dave's like, you got to listen to Nightbird. I was like, okay, Nightbird, here we go. And then my friend texts me from Ohio. I know Nightbird. Have you seen da-da-da? Interesting. Okay, then I get on Instagram. Pete Gregg's like, some very honest reading here with Nightbird. I thought, I better read Nightbird. Nightbird sang a song. Her name's Jane. She's from Ohio. And uh, she sang a song. They gave her 2% chance to live with cancer. She's had cancer three times before she's 30. Something happens to you when you realize you're dead. And a whole bunch of stuff starts falling off. And things begin, that are really important begin to rise to the top. And the fear of man falls off. And the desire for others rather than yourself begins to take stage. It's called love. And she sang this song, It's Okay. I would encourage you to go listen. It made Simon Cowell cry, which is a miracle. But I read her blog, and it went a lot deeper than just a song and a stage. The reality is the great moment of Nightbird's life is not 16 million on YouTube and that one moment on the stage. The great moment is all the days in between where she found a song in the darkness of the night. After the doctor told me I was dying, this is her blog, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. 
I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die, I might meet with... I might meet with God and that he will say, I disappointed him or I offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say, I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs and sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me for himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale and laid in his shadow and squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in his hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes did not wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me every morning. And the Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees and in my mother's crooked hands and the blanket my friend left for me and the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I repeat it until I mean it. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, call me blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him in the bathroom. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. If you can't see him, look lower. Oh, the glory of God. 
in the nothing boat. Maybe the brokenness of our hearts, and I learned this from Heather Lopresto, is the only way that we can be trusted with the brokenhearted in our city. Maybe our brokenness isn't earning us some miracle reward, but it's giving us the precious treasure of being close to those who are also in the nothing boat, those who are also broken. And then the story changes all of a sudden. I've blown my timeline as I look at my clock. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Just the disciples did not know. Daybreak, like a song in the night. A man stood and prophesied right here in this very room. A man from South Africa. He prophesied that maybe there was a dawn for Nava, and he prophesied John 21. That maybe there was a new day coming. But you know what? I don't want to wait to be okay for when it's light out. I want to find a song in the night that moves his heart. I don't want to wait for a miracle to be happy. How about you? Miracles will happen, but they are not what makes me okay. But the day was breaking, and this guy on the beach says, Hey, kids, caught anything? Don't you love cheeky Jesus? I mean, he just messes with us, doesn't he, sometimes? How's it going fishing out there? And they're just like, oh, nothing. We've caught nothing. He goes, hey, throw your net on the right side of the boat. It's amazing. They're like, oh, who is this guy? And they don't recognize who it is because glory's hidden again. He keeps coming to us. Look lower. His glory's hidden. The resurrection's on a beach. And they throw their nets in. And as they do, I mean, crazy town breaks out. Fish start jumping into the nets one after another. And I was just with the great fisherman. He says, never catch, count your fish. But these guys did, 153. Must have been some kind of a crazy thing that happened. And this time the nets did not tear and they did not break. Something's going on. a powerful reminder here between the difference between everything we can do in our strength and the waiting of the end of ourselves where Jesus begins to speak. A life lived for the glory of God is a life that is at the end of itself waiting for Jesus to speak. It's a beautiful life. The whole first calling comes flooding back into Peter. It happened just like that in Luke chapter 5. Press out. The net went in. That time the nets broke. But Peter is overwhelmed. His calling is beginning to be restored. The story God is writing is at the end of Peter's strength. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter's been in the hot sun. I don't understand this, but he puts his garment on on to jump in the water. Must be a Middle Eastern thing. 
And he threw himself into the sea and he begins to Michael Phelps his way towards Jesus on the shore, leaving the other guys, of course, and you can feel John's disdain to pull in the heavy catch. John always tries to snub Peter in his eternal gospel. Like uh, we had to drag in the nets like Peter couldn't wait, you know, and Jesus will correct that later and be like, hey, help, you know, help the guys out, get the net in. Peter's move, maybe it's his deep love for his friend, maybe something overwhelming desire to make things right. And no matter what's happened this year, I wonder if you'd be willing to throw yourself back in that water one more time if you heard him at daybreak on the shore. I wonder if you'd be willing to be as courageous as the night bird and throw yourself back in the water overcoming what is rightfully yours to be cynical or down about the nothing that you've experienced. I'm not saying it's easy to throw yourself back in, but something caught the heart of that man and he flailed himself back into the water. He had the anchor of his own shame weighing him down in that water, but he made it to the beach somehow. And they're waiting for him. Was the resurrection making breakfast? I mean, guys, it doesn't get any better than the beach and a fire on the beach and food. And Jesus has already got it warmed up. The resurrection's about to cook you breakfast. That must have been amazing. I mean, even in the new heavens and the new earth, like it doesn't get any better than a beach and Jesus and a fire and some fish and a seat for you with your pain, right? And so he begins to fix them breakfast. They haul in the catch and there they are. And you know, Jesus knows dudes. Dudes are not good at sharing their emotions with each other unless they're looking at something burning in the middle of them. We're not good at just like looking in his eyes and this is what I'm feeling. We're working on that. Sorry to all of our wives. But when you have a fire and food filling your belly, it's like Jesus knows the secret to the man's heart and fire therapy is born. We look at the fire and we talk intimately and then we cry, but we don't look at each other. You're like wiping it away. And it's something about the fire since the beginning of time that makes a man open his heart and food helps a lot. And Jesus begins to show us, Jesus begins to show us the pace of love. It is slow. And it allows your trauma, like your wet, drenched, cynical clothes, to dry out at the fire. And it does not rush your process. Remember on Easter where we talked about the man on the road questioning them, drawing out the pain of their heart? Well, Jesus is doing trauma therapy and he's allowing the emotions to come up. In fact, the only times this word charcoal fire is used, guess the other time. Right there where Peter's warming his hands in a courtyard and looks at his best friend and denies him how many times? three times. How many know that smells trigger memories? I was just walking in my neighborhood in North Carolina. As I'm walking along, a certain smell of a combination of flowers and trees that is in my neighborhood 
hit me and I felt the anxiety of my pubescent self as 13 waiting at the bus stop, freaked out of my mind that I was about to go to school. And I'm like, this is weird. Apparently, the part of your brain which registers smell is right next to the memory bank. And so smell triggers memory. So Jesus makes a memory fire. And the smell triggers the trauma of his failure and his denial. Is Jesus incredible? He's amazing. I don't know if you've ever really, really blown it with God. It is hard to recover. I am so thankful for a fire for the failures. <laughs> for, a, for a breakfast making king who would let me sit in the failure and all of his friends are around. He's restored the calling with the catch of the fish, but his heart is still broken and gone. It doesn't matter if you have the calling, if you've lost your heart along the way. And the only thing that can restore our hearts is the love of this man. And so he begins to ask him, after they had finished breakfast, don't you love the pace of love? It is slow. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. More than these, he knew the robbing, haunting comparison down in Peter's heart. He's looking at other people's stories, but his is a train wreck. Have you ever been there? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it a third time. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. You've heard this before, but Jesus would be so kind to allow him to hear himself say, I love you three times in the place of three denials. To meet him at the bottom on the bathroom floor. To meet him right there in the middle of his deepest failure. To restore Peter to restore his heart, Jesus asked the question of love. Pete Scazzaro says, in Peter, God wants to show us that our worst moments of failure and defeat may actually be our greatest moments of success in terms of God doing a transformative work in us and through us. Peter needed to know that he could gain the whole world and lose his soul. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I am nothing. What you've done in your performance, where your story is right now, if you're in the nothing boat, I want to say if you are a person of love, that is the only thing which will last forever. And without love, you are nothing. 
That is the only true nothing that we are concerned about in the love of God. What would it look like for you and I to become people of love? I remember over and over Floyd praying this prayer, the things that break my heart, your heart, God, let them break my heart. The things that you feel, I wanna feel. What you love, I want to love. Jesus is calling Peter to not only love him, but in loving him, to love the people that he loves. You see, the whole of John has been revealing God as a shepherd. You know that's what we're called to, right? That's the promise of God over Nava to be a shepherd center. The second night I had the dream, you'll be a shepherd center like Ezekiel 34. It reveals that the shepherds of Israel would not go after the weak. They would not go after the stray. They would not go after the injured. They would not go after the lost. And so it says in Ezekiel 34, I will search for them and I will be their shepherd. All of the conversations and the moments with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, all of the stories of the blind beggar, it's Jesus being the shepherd of his people. You see, there's people waiting in the city for the love of God. And what it looks like to love Jesus is to love them. Jesus in his teachings and in his life married love for God and our givenness to God and our love for our neighbor. He became the shepherd. And Peter had a grandiose idea of greatness and success that had everything to do with his selfish ambition and nothing to do with making someone else great. And oh God, have I been guilty of this. I have never been more aware of my selfish ambition ever before. But what if the glory of God, a life lived for the glory of God, could look like becoming a person of love? Do we have time to love the people right in front of us every day? This is the gift of being made like Jesus, to love the marginalized and the forgotten, the mentally and physically disabled. I bless you, my friend, in the way you've given your life to that. Because it's your gift, isn't it? Every time you do it to find Jesus and his sheep? What would it look like to carry the lambs in our arms like Jesus? I remember Floyd saying, do you have tears for your city? And I said, no, I do not. And I remember when God, I began to pray, give me tears for the people in my neighborhood. And I remember the night when God broke my heart and I wept over my neighbors. They're not a project. They're the lambs of God that he's still looking for. Do you have tears for your city? And do you have time? This is the life of the glory of God, to love. It's patient and it's slow and it listens. And this is not time to defend the church. It's indefensible. That ship has sailed. The church is not worth defending. It is time to be the church. Yes? And being the church would look like being those who tend to the lambs of God in this city. Nava, our best days of love are ahead of us. 
And the measure of maturity is love. I just got to read this next part, even though I'm over my time, because this is incredible. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is the journey of transition. This is the journey of maturity. A life lived for the glory of God is a life of love. And a life lived for the glory of God is a life fully surrendered. When you were young, you put on the presentation. You dressed yourself and presented yourself however you wanted. And you went where you desired to go. But maturity will look like this. You will stretch out your hands, no, like this. And you will not defend yourself. And you will not clothe yourself. And you will not have to put on achievement or performance. For you will be a beloved son or daughter of God. And now another will dress you. The Father will dress you. And his approval will mean everything to you. And you will be free from popularity and free of false notions of greatness. And you will be free from the religion of success. You will be free to be loved by God. And that will be enough. And another will lead you where you don't want to go into the great life of love. And he said this, now listen, to signify the kind of death he would die to glorify God. To glorify God. Every day is a chance to deny yourself, to lay down whatever script of success you wanted to write and let Jesus write a script a script that maybe you don't want, that is shaped more like a cross than a crown. But I promise you to glorify God is the greatest thing you will ever do. I pray that through this message, you have seen Jesus. Maybe you saw Jesus in the night bird on the bathroom floor. I remember when Floyd knelt in a living room. He was an old man, and I saw the glory of God. They just gave him the news that his daughter was about to die and also his firstborn grandson. He knelt in that living room. We were young men. We gathered around him, and he with tears said, don't take my daughter, but whatever glorifies you more. And he wept for the glory of God. He was an old man whose arms were outstretched, who let God dress him and take him where he didn't want to go. That man who went to 190 nations and wrote 18 books, finished his life five years unable to walk anywhere, unable to speak. But when I went and met with him, I watched his tears and I watched him finish a death that glorified God. And Peter would finish upside down on a cross. And Jesus martyred and crucified by the world. I don't know what story God has for you, but Peter looks at John and goes, what about that guy? What about him? And Jesus goes, stop looking at someone else's job. Stop looking at your neighbor's success story. Quit looking at another church. You, Nava, follow me. You, David, follow me. 
Comparison will kill your God glory story. Why? Because God's waiting for you in your story, not someone else's story. Even if it's not the story you want, even if you're on the nothing boat, even if you're on the bathroom floor, I saw God. I saw Jesus in that man knelt there. Maybe you saw Jesus and Peter. I pray you would see the glory of Jesus redefined. A life lived for the glory of God is a life of love for the sheep. And everyone is so precious to God. And a life lived for the glory of God is surrender and obedience to wherever he wants to take you. Oh, be glorified. Can't you hear Jesus' prayer? Father, glorify me. I want to invite the worship team up. We're going to go about five minutes over, if that's right. And If you're here and you saw Jesus' glory again, Maybe you saw him in Nightbird or you saw him in Peter or you saw him in the story of Floyd. And you say, I don't know exactly where I'm at on the map, but I want to aim at those eyes at the end and I want to live a life for the glory of God. I want to invite you to stand if you want to say, I want to live for the glory of God. Not just because it's a good thing to do, but because my heart is moved by seeing him. And we're going to finish with this beautiful song. When I survey the wondrous cross. And the last verses were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Invite you to stand if you say, Father, glorify my name. While worship is going on, there's going to be two prayer teams back there. And I'm aware that some of you aren't ready to jump in the water and you're not even finding God on the bathroom floor and you're not seeing him on the shore when you're in the nothing boat and you're just absolutely stuck. And I want to say you're welcome to be in the patient love of God. And there's prayer ministers who want to be with you. Or if you need prayer for anything at all, we are here in the sacrament of love in Christ to bless you. If we can stretch our hands out, if you want the glory of God, and I just want to bless you. Stretch out our hands with open palms. Stretch out our hearts to receive and not control. Dress us in your thoughts. You are enough for us. And lead us wherever you want to take us. Write the story that will most glorify you, whether it looks like an utter disaster and failure. Father, glorify your name. And if that's your prayer, just begin to say, Father, glorify your name in my life. Father, I want to be a woman or a man of love. Father, I surrender. Father, glorify your name. It doesn't have to look glorious on earth, but when I'm standing before you, Father, glorify your name. Let's sing together.